Having kids is awesome, but raising them can be difficult and filled with ups and downs. Challenges are seemingly everywhere, whether they're medical, social, financial, cultural, or otherwise. And sometimes, the downs threaten to drown out the ups. In short, having kids is risky. We get it. We're parents too. But we're also pediatric emergency doctors. We have unique insight into risks and how to keep them in perspective. Welcome to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. Join us as we explore the challenges and the fun of raising healthy children. Hello again, everyone. I'm Dr. Ed Les, and welcome back to another episode of Cloudy with a Risk of Children. We've been on hiatus for a few weeks. I just got back from some time away with my family. Summer break, but cut a bit short because we were forced to evacuate from our little family cottage in BC's Okanagan Valley, uh, thanks to raging forest fires. Our place is still there for now, but uh, fire is still raging just a few kilometers away from our doorstep. We're all fine, which is the important thing, and a huge shout out here to the brave men and women fighting those fires. A number of them lost their own homes to the fires, but continued to battle the flames on the front lines. Uh, their selfless dedication is really inspiration to all of us. Uh, on to today's show. Like many of you, I'm a huge fan of Ed Sheeran. He has uh, so many great songs like Photograph, Perfect, Shape of You. Uh, my personal favorite is Supermarket Flowers. It's so powerful. The lines... You were an angel in the shape of my mom, and when God takes you back, we'll say, Hallelujah, you're home. They get me every time. My whole family loves his music, although it's fair to say that for my girls and my wife, he runs a distant second to Taylor Swift. Uh, fair to call them Swifties. Uh, as it happens, Taylor Swift helped Ed Sheeran rocket to his uh, current superstardom. When she invited him to tour with her and open for her, I think about 10 years ago, on her tour called uh, The Red Tour. And uh, it's hard to imagine now, but when Ed Sheeran was in primary school, his life was difficult, to put it mildly. He was a bit different looking. He had corrective glasses to correct a lazy eye, and he had a stutter. The kind of kid that bullies are attracted to like magnets, and he suffered. It was brutal for him, as he tells it, he cried almost every day. But he found refuge in music, and needless to say, everything has changed. Which is the title, of course, of a song that he co-wrote and sang with Taylor Swift on her album, Red. Uh, once you know Ed's story, it adds extra punch to the music video that accompanies that song. Go and watch it online, and you'll see what I mean. I invited Ed Sheeran, uh, via some connections, to come on the show to talk about bullying. Total long shot, I realized, but, you know, as uh, one Ed to another, I thought it wouldn't hurt to ask. Uh, there's not many of us out there named Ed anymore, after all. Uh, but no response from Mr. Sheeran, unsurprisingly, given who he is and the fact that I'm, well, nobody. Uh, so, Ed Sheeran, as I said, uh, survived his bullies, obviously thrived thanks to his resilience and his rare musical talent, and now his distinctive looks are really just part of his brand. But it could just as easily have gone the other way. 
And for many kids tormented at school and elsewhere, it does go the other way, and often horrifically so. For lots of kids, bullying is the start of a downward spiral from which they never recover. Consider as an example the brutal case of Amanda Todd, a 15-year-old teenager from Maple Ridge, British Columbia, who committed suicide in her family home about a month after she posted a video to YouTube where she described how she had sunk into a deep depression after enduring years of online bullying and blackmail. It's been three days now since 15-year-old Amanda Todd committed suicide, tormented online and at school by bullies. The impact of her death grows deeper by the day, and we have extensive coverage for you tonight and begin with the latest from police. A horrific case, obviously, but there's more Amandas out there. She's not unique. And for every Amanda, there's hundreds who don't kill themselves, but who live lives of despair and brokenness and self-loathing triggered by incessant bullying. None of which is new, really. Bullying is as old as the human race itself. And it really cuts across all walks of life and across all social classes, across all demographics. Victims of bullying often begin to believe the negative comments about them, or they think that they deserve the abuse. And they can end up in a deep pit of depression and hopelessness and anxiety with school and relationship problems that can be difficult to solve. It can really be a dark hellhole from which it seems impossible to escape. And these days, with the explosion of social media in all of its forms, Snapchat, Instagram, Discord, TikTok, Be Real, that's made the problem go nuclear, so to speak. Abuse delivered by social media can be like a hidden dagger to the hearts of its victims. A child or a teenager can be viciously assaulted over and over again by online attackers while they're trying to do homework quietly in their room and no one else will know about it. It's really sickening. Kids aren't the only uh, people that cyber bully. Older people do as well. And so it can be a, a habit that is ingrained in a family or in society at large. That's Wanda Cassidy, a cyberbullying expert at Simon Fraser University, who was commenting in the aftermath of Amanda Todd's death. When I was growing up, young people who were bullied in school could at least go home to a safe place where they had some hours at home free from torment. Today, however, constant connection via social media leaves those who are bullied no respite at all from the bullying. It's nightmarish stuff. So the question is, what can we do? Are we helpless? Or are there strategies we can use, defenses we can build, to push back against the poison of bullying? And the good news is that there are things we can do. And that's the focus of today's podcast. I wasn't able to convince Ed Sheeran to come on the show to inspire us with his story, of course. But I was able to convince Lisa Dixon Wells to join us. Now, Lisa is a star in her own right, and she's really a hero for the anti-bullying advocacy work that she does. Lisa is the founder of the anti-bullying organization Dare to Care. And she shares her insights into the roots of bullying, the prevalence of bullying in school and in sports, the impact of social media, and most importantly, strategies to deal with bullying, strategies like the three-door challenge. We'll be right back with that interview with Lisa. 
So I'm honored to be sitting here today opposite the illustrious Lisa Dixon-Wells. Lisa is the founder of Dare to Care, a nonprofit organization she founded in 1999 to address the pervasive issue of bullying in kids and youth. It was the first comprehensive program in Canada to tackle this important issue. And since its inception, Dare to Care has delivered three signature programs to over 2,000 schools across Canada. The government of Alberta in 2016 awarded her organization the Inspiration Award for Leadership and Bully Prevention. And in 2018, she adapted her award-winning program to work with amateur sports organizations. Now, of course, Lisa knows a thing or two about the sporting world. She's a former member of the Canadian National Swim Team, and she's a World Masters Swimming Champion. In 2015, in fact, she was inducted into the University of Calgary Sports Hall of Fame. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Oh, thank you very much. Perhaps you could just start off by giving us a bit of background on Dare to Care, how it came into being, why it came into being. So I started out my adult career. I was um, a school counselor in a very high-need school in Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. And it seemed consistently that the kids that were being referred to me were on one end of the spectrum or the other, the one spectrum being uh, very aggressive, assertive kids who weren't following the rules, were being being very mean-spirited. And then the other hand were these kids with very low self-esteem. And as a new counselor, I think I attended more professional development days in that first year as counselor than I did in the rest of my adult career. But there was nothing around bully prevention. Um, Nobody was even talking about it. So I decided to go back to university and do a, a master's in educational psychology. And my whole focus was on developing the first ever in Canada, the first ever comprehensive bully prevention program which later became known as dare to care so why that name lisa really two reasons Uh, first off uh, the dare to care was more to acknowledge the the courage it takes to do the right thing and when it comes to bully prevention the courage to stand up to the bully or the courage to be that person who goes up and helps a friend who's who's being uh, targeted so the dare to care was really to acknowledge the courage but then the 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 other side of it was that challenge piece that I double dog dare you yeah. to do something about this don't just say you would help someone actually do it so dare to care right the fact there, that it rhymed just helped. Yeah, no, for sure. I love it. It's uh, it, it just rolls off the tongue, and it, right. I think it captures the essence of what you're doing very, very well. Oh, thanks. Now, this concept of bullying, of course, is as old as the earth itself, but it's also, to some extent, I think, a bit of a moving definition. I had a conversation with a nursing colleague last night. I was working in the emergency department, and I mentioned that you were coming on our show And so we talked about bullying a little bit, and she's older and experienced, and she made the comment that uh, what is perceived as bullying these days is somewhat different than what was considered bullying back in the day when she was a girl. And so can you speak to that? What is bullying actually, and how is it different from, you know, the rough and tumble lives of young people that's perfectly normal? 
Right. Well, and I think the biggest roadblock we all have, uh, those of us in the world of bully prevention, is that everybody is defining it differently. And it's impossible to be effective and to ch- shift the culture away from bullying if uh, everybody's got that different, uh, that different definition. So the standard sort of globalized definition is that there's, there's four points to it. One, it has to be repetitive. So we're not talking about a one-time thing. That is called conflict. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. I'll sure. do that comparison in a moment. But bullying is repetitive, meaning there's a pattern of negative behavior there. It's intentional. Um, if I was a bully at my swim club in Red Deer and I moved to Calgary and I was a swim club in Calgary, I am going to try and be, have that power in my new swim club. It might take me a couple of weeks because I need to find or figure out who I can pick on and who I best leave alone. So it's very intentional, uh, premeditated, one would say. It also is an imbalance of power. So it's very one-sided and the person on the receiving end feels helpless to do anything about it. And I think the last thing we need to look at, uh, because we can't measure somebody's intention. If you ask a bully, did you intend to hurt that person physically or emotionally? They'll deny, deny, deny. But we need to look at the impact it's having on the person who is being targeted and talk to those individuals and and be very cognizant of that and aware as coaches, as adults, as teachers, uh, if there's a, a change in somebody's behavior. So again, definition is repetitive, intentional, imbalance of power. And do you think that overall as a phenomenon, it's, well, maybe back up for a second, how common is it as a phenomenon? I think I was looking at your website. Every day, 175,000 kids across Canada miss school because of bullying. 15% of students are bullied, and research shows that the bullies make up 2% of the student population, and another 4% are their friends and supporters, and the remainder are bystanders of kids who are afraid to intervene for fear of becoming the next target. Exactly. Yeah. So are those numbers. Those numbers still still, still are very very accurate. Um, I would just change that to say it's it's 175,000 students uh, across North America. Across North that, America. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah. Our stats are very very similar with the states. Um, yeah. It it very much is the 79 percent, the silent majority, the kids, and not just kids, the adults whether it's parents, teachers, coaches, um, who witness bullying but don't know what to do about it. And because of fear, they stay silent. And at Dare to Care, that's really our goal, is to mobilize that that group, the silent majority, into the caring majority. The other thing I, I did want to say, I just wanted to expand on a little bit, is, you know, again, going back to the definition of bullying, really, I think we need to look at it in three ways. We've got mean moments, which are normal part of human life is when you have a bad moment and you um, purposely attack someone verbally, usually it's verbal. And it's typically emotion behind that. You're angry, you're frustrated, you're hungry, you're, you haven't had a lot of sleep. And we verbally abuse somebody once. And after a while, we go back and we apologize. We've all had mean moments, whether it's a child or an adult. That's a normal part of life. Conflict is also a normal part of life, and I think oftentimes confused as bullying. But conflict is 
two parties, two individuals or two parties who are going at it. Um, there's no imbalance of power. It's this back and forth, almost like a tug of war of words and actions. It becomes drama when they go and get their, their posse and now you have large groups of people going after each other. And it's loud and it's ugly and it could be very mean-spirited, but it's normal. It's, it's equal power. Um, there's no imbalance of power. Conflict is a normal part of life. Bullying is where there's a complete imbalance of power and should never, ever be considered a normal part of life. Right. You know, in the preamble, I mentioned Ed Sheeran, the famous singer, of course, and he was bullied as a child. He was a bit odd-looking, wore glasses, and so there was various reasons. And he went through some really hard times when he was a kid. So Ed Sheeran, obviously, is an example of a fellow who endured all of that and then succeeded despite of that. You might look at the example of a person like Ed Sheeran and, and conclude that it built resiliency, prepared him in some way for the real world. But the reality is, so far as I understand it, that the more common outcome is dramatically different from that. You know, those of us who have been paying any attention to this field over the years, uh, most of us remember the tragic case, for example, of Amanda Todd, mm -hmm. that teenager in Vancouver who was bullied online. And, of course, for most bullied children, it doesn't end that tragically, but certainly it can send them into a downward spiral from which it's very hard to recover. And speaking of Amanda Todd, the way in which bullying is different now, I think, is because of the explosion of social media. Can you speak to the influence of that? Or what's your experience with that been? Yeah, you know, we, we talk about old school bullying, which is the the name calling, the teasing, the physical, the pushing, shoving, kicking, that type of thing. Um, Cyberbullying has taken it to a whole different realm. And, and there's, there's a quote, I'm not going to have it perfected here, but it, it's something to do with kids are growing up on a digital digital playground, but nobody is on recess duty. And I think that encapsulates the whole issue is that we've got kids who don't understand the consequences of their words online and how easy it is to um, spew hatred and ugly things and share inappropriate pictures because you don't see the person on the receiving end. You don't get that immediate reaction. Uh, they, they, the studies are showing that since the beginning of COVID, uh, cyberbullying actually has increased 70%, which makes sense because we were all forced to go onto the Zoom platforms and, and do a lot of work online, etc. And for kids who communicate naturally through social media and different platforms, it just uh, amplified that opportunity for them to spread rumors and, and hateful messages. Um, so a 70% increase yeah. from what was already a fairly high level. Already a huge problem. Prior to yeah. COVID, but now so much worse. Yeah, it truly is. And I, and I, I stand by my statement that I've always said that parents are the number one line of defense here. Um, it's so easy to, to purchase these devices for our children, but there, it comes with great responsibility from the parents, but also from the kids themselves and having some sort of contract. And I know that sounds 
very big brotherish. But when it comes to social media and, and all of the problems that, uh, you know, are arising online from predators to just friends turning on each other, um, parents really need to step in and be aware of what, what's going on. The difficulty is there's never any downtime. You know, one of the lines that we use uh, in our work is that kids have never been more connected. In a way, they're never alone, but yet they've never been more lonely because these are not really deep, nuanced, rich friendships. These sure. are connections formed over electronic media. And, you know, in the past, when I was a kid, and if somebody was bullied, they would go home at the end of the day and their bullies would go to their home and they wouldn't see their exactly. tormentor until the next day. Mm-hmm. Now the tormentors go home with the kids. Yep, 24/7. And it gets worse. 24-7. And it's involving kids who wouldn't normally take part in that kind of behavior because, again, it's just so easy to be part of a group um, spewing awful things when you're not seeing the direct impact. For most of us, it goes back to those me moments, right? I'm having a really bad day and I call you something horrible, Ed, and and. I see that reaction and I might not apologize right away, but it's going to bother me right. and I'm going to come back and apologize with cyberbullying. That's completely, absolutely. The removed. filters, the filters are gone. Mm-hmm. And just like with email, you know, email for the younger generation is totally passe, but dinosaurs like me still use email <laughs> and I'm guilty of shooting off an email, you know, particularly when it's a more difficult topic and I should have learned by now that I should always, after I craft an email, sleep on it, read it again the next morning. <laughs> We've all had that issue. Before yeah. I send it. <laughs> yeah. But this is the just this is the real time world in which our kids live, mm-hmm. and so they will post stuff online that they can't take back. You know, on Snapchat or Instagram or Be Real or Discord, what have you, mm-hmm. and they and they can't take it back, and they don't take it back. It's inaccurate information, um, and and very very hurtful. And you have developed this concept, I think you call it three doors. That the three door challenge. The three door challenge, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. not, that applies not just to the in-person real world, but also lends itself well, I think, to the social media space. Can you explain what that is? So the three door challenge is a visual presentation we give the kids. Um, each door has a question on it. And before they post, share, like, comment on anything, they need to answer the question on each of those three doors. So door number one is you have to ask yourself, could I say this to the person's face? Or if it's a photo, could I show this photo to the person uh, before I post it? If the answer is yes, then go ahead to door number two, proceed to door number two. If the answer is no, I couldn't, say this to the person's face or show them the photo, then that's a that's a, your conscience saying, don't do it, don't post it, don't say it. Door number two, you ask yourself, could I, you know, how would I feel? The empathy piece, how could, how would I feel if somebody said those things about me online or posted those things? So the empathy piece, stepping back and thinking about how would I feel? If you would feel fine, you wouldn't be embarrassed or humiliated, then great, go through door number two. But if there's a part of you thinking, you know, if somebody said those things about me, I'd be horrified, I'd be angry, I'd be upset then stop right there and walk away. Don't post. The final door is the big one. Could you stand up in front of everybody you care about, you know, your classmates, your teammates, your your parents, your grandparents, uh, and throw in the police, put them in there. 
could you show them what it is you're about to share online, whether it's a photo, whether it's a, a meme, a joke or a comment, could you show that to the people you care about and be okay with it? If the answer is yes, then great. Go through door number three and you're good to go. Post, share, like, you're good. But if there's a little voice in your head saying, I sure hope mom doesn't see it or I sure hope my coach doesn't see it, that's the voice telling you the chances are really high. They are going to see it at some point. Yeah. So just walk away. So it's really, and it's, this is the three door challenge. Isn't just for kids. This is something I think a lot of adults need to, to do stop and, you know, count to 10 before, before you post. Sure. And that really resonates with me, uh, because I like to think of myself as an adult. <laughs> I guess the question is, does it resonate with teenagers? Like when you present that three door challenge to your group. So when you're talking with students or with young athletes, is your experience that, they listen to that. Does it resonate? Like in the feedback that you receive, do they? Do you find that kids actually will use that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I've had a lot of instances where a teacher or um, a parent has emailed me back who has been part of a, a parent session or a professional development session where I, I go over the, the three-door challenge. And they'll say that, um, you know, when their child came home from, from school, they talked about the three-door challenge and they remembered every single step. Does it resonate in the moment, in the heat of the moment? Maybe not. And, and this is just where all sorts of other safe, um, you know, portals need to be put in, in place and that parents need to be aware. But I think it's, it's something that, um, I think it's, it's worth sharing with kids. It's just something, a seed to plant in their mind. The one thing I will say, and it was very funny, quite a few years ago, I had a grade nine boy in a, an assembly stand up after I presented the three door challenge. And he said, uh, ma'am, my mom told me to just ask myself, would grandma be proud of me? <laughs> and I thought, you know what? We don't really need the three door challenge. That's a great question. That's a great. That's a great question. Right? Could you? And I, I. So I do say this to kids now, whether it's a bunch of athletes or a bunch of kids in an assembly, is if I took your phone right now, and gave it to your grandma, gave her your password, would they be proud of what they saw on your phone? The language you are using, the things you are saying the pictures you're posting, the pictures you're taking, would your grandmother be proud of you? Yeah. And the kids, there's a lot of rumbling and the, there's a lot of kids nodding and I'm like, great, then keep doing what you're doing. And then there's a lot of kids who you can see the the terror in their eyes that if we were to actually do that, um, yeah, no, there, there, there would be some disappointment. Yeah, for so sure. I, I think that the, the three door challenge is a really good visual and uh, something to remember, but following it up with that story about would your grandmother be that's proud? a really good that's a really yeah. good story assuming of course that grandma's not a bully yeah, well, there's always that yeah <laughs> you know which which is uh you know we chuckle a bit but that's not an inconsequential point right when it comes to the roots of how bullies come oh, to be absolutely bully know, is a, a learned behavior you know the classic monkey see monkey yeah. do yeah um, is or the very, apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, we have these situations where, you know, certainly we spend a lot of our time counseling and taking care of and trying to heal those that are bullied. I think it's a perhaps a neglected part of this that we have to also remember to care for the bully. I agree, but I also think 
the biggest way we can care because we cannot step into that home. We don't have the resources, schools and and sport organizations don't have the resources to work with the family and what's been the history going on there. I think the best way for schools and sport organizations is to hold them accountable, Yes. to hold them accountable. And the younger we do that, the better off uh, those kids are going to be. I've always believed that kids who take on a bullying role who need that power can be incredible leaders. They just do it the wrong way. They, they go for power in the wrong way. Yeah. And if we can redirect that by holding them accountable, calling it what it is, which is bullying behavior, um, that's probably the biggest thing we can do for these kids. You know, going back to what I said, it, it's a learned behavior. No, no child is ever born with a stamp on their head. You know, you're, you're going to be a bully and you're going to be a bully. Yeah. It's a hundred percent learned and typically learned at home by the major, through the major caregivers. And, uh, we're not always going to be able to change that dynamic, but right. we can certainly hold those kids accountable when they're in our our community. I've, I've always said we've we've got to stop tiptoeing around the 2% who right. are doing the bullying and we need to start reclaiming our communities, whether that's school, the workplace, whether that's sports. Right. You know, it uh, speaks to root causes, I guess, which is very mm-hmm. much a um, buzz phrase in social justice circles with regard to the criminal justice system. And absolutely, we need to look at root causes and try to understand why people commit offenses, why they are the way they are. Absolutely, we should look at that and develop empathy and compassion for that. But to your point, that doesn't mean that we forgive the crime or forgive the infraction. Uh, And the same thing applies here because we have to come down hard on the on the behavior and try to extinguish it. Um, Now, you built your organization from the beginning to speak to primarily to schools. My understanding is because of the COVID pandemic, you've developed a number of online modules or it's primarily online now? Is that yeah, right? we, we've completely lifted and shifted our um, in-person programming, which includes all K- kindergarten through grade nine programming, as well as the, our parent uh, education program and our professional development is now available 100% online. We're doing little bits of in-person, but uh, to be honest, our focus now is on expanding uh, in sports. So just to back to the schools for a second, then we'll tackle the sports thing um, with the schools. Has that proven to be uh, a an advantage or disadvantage for the schools having access to what you provide online? For those schools who have had us in the past, um, I, it's a change for them. They're used to us being in person and, and there are some benefits to the in-person. Um, but the big benefit of the online and, and once some of these schools have tried our online program they're also seeing the benefits the benefit is schools have it for the the program for the entire year so they can revisit all of the content and all of the content has been greatly expanded when we do in person we're very limited in time you know we may have one hour with kindergarten grade one and grade two Uh, we now have six modules that are each a half hour long and each of those modules Uh, has activities attached to it to anchor the learning. And that's not something we can do when we're in person. So there's huge benefits, also far more um, cost effective uh, for for schools. And and that's a big issue. Schools are hurting with with budgets for um, outside programming. So we're very proud of the online program. Uh, It was a shift mentally for me too, because I always felt 
we would only be effective if we did it in person, but the feedback has all been incredibly, incredibly positive. So tell me about your pivot to sports. And this is something that really does resonate with me. I have four children, as you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, we spoke earlier. And uh, one of my uh, girls, uh, student athlete, was bullied during her sports experience. And so I know firsthand that it exists as an issue within sports, just as it does in schools. So tell me about your, your pivot to sports and, and, and why you felt that this was something to tackle mm-hmm. as your next big project. I always knew, uh, being a previous athlete myself, I guess still an athlete, just a whole different level of, of athlete, uh, I always knew that bullying existed. I mean, I saw it. I was part of it. I was part of a group that bullied some people. I was on the receiving end at, at times, um, whether it was from coaches, whether it was from fellow athletes. And I always knew that our, the way we set about doing Dare to Care and, and the, the fact that we were working with all the stakeholders in the school, so not just preaching to kids to help one another. We were working with the educators, with the administrators, with the parents, the whole community. I knew that that model would work very, very well in sports and that it would be easy to adapt to the sport culture. But I just didn't have that opportunity. We're a pretty lean organization. We were so busy in the schools. But in 2018, I was approached by the University of Calgary Swim Club, which was the largest swim club in the country at that time. It it might still be. And they wanted me to help them with their code of conduct. And I said, you know, could we take it one step further if I was able to secure some funding? Could we do a pilot with working with all of your swimmers? So over 650 swimmers, I think at the time, there were about 750 parents and 43 coaches. Could I work with all of them, the entire swim club and do pre-post surveys and let's just see how effective Dare to Care is in sports. And and there's no other, at the time, no other program like Dare to Care in sports. To date, there still isn't. We're the only program out there working with all the stakeholders. Anyway, we did the pre-post surveys. Uh, It was so positive that I approached Swim Canada. And the reason there's a high focus on swimming is that's my background. That's, That's the atmosphere I know and love. Um, and I wanted to give back to that sport as well. So I approached Swim Canada and we got funding to work with 10 swim clubs across the country, did pre-post surveys as well, and got the same results. So I knew we were sitting on something that was very much needed. And this was just at the beginning of the safe sport movement in Canada, when we were starting to hear about Hockey Canada and, and other national level sports and the neglect that was going on and how things were sort of, sort of, you know, shuffled under the rug. And, um, I just thought this is it. This is the time to, to ride this wave. In fact, ride ahead of the wave because we already had the program developed. We're not recreating or starting from scratch. And it's just taken off from there. Obviously, COVID put a halt to things or I temporarily halted things, yeah. but started doing virtual um, sessions with, with athletes and coaches, et cetera. And now we're back into in-person. So this year is our focus is on growth uh, and development in the Dare to Care and Sports side of things. Is the types of bullying that you see really fairly similar to what you see in schools just in a different arena so to speak it it really is when you look at sport canada they they look at bullying maltreatment and abuse in sports under sort of three categories the abuse side of things uh 
primarily this sexual abuse and that's what gets most of the media attention of course they also talk about neglect so not giving athletes the bare necessities so uh, you know setting them up in unsafe training schedules or unsafe training environments not providing them access to enough food water that type of thing so neglect is another area they look at and then there's the psychological bullying which is exactly the same as in yeah. schools the the verbal the physical the rumors gossip cyberbullying sexual harassment racism right. dis- discrimination um and and i would say just like our experience in schools i would say cyberbullying uh, exclusion, rumors, and gossip are the four big ones. For Physical sure. abuse is there for sure. Uh, certainly, there are athletes who are struggling who are of, of color. So, racism, disc- discrimination is alive and well, and sexual harassment alive and well in sports. But I would say the main ones are, uh, and the most, uh, well, I'll take that back, not the most hurtful. They're all hurtful, but the, probably the main ones we're dealing with is cyberbullying and then the relationship, so rumors, gossip, and, and exclusion. It occurs to me that the perhaps one key difference here, now, of course, there, of course, there's school avoidance and there's people who drop out of school entirely because of bullying, but it's much more difficult to drop out of the school system. But I think it's true that the dropout rate from sports because of bullying is fairly high. Seven out of 10. Seven out of 10 athletes. Seven, seven mm-hmm. out of 10? Yeah, in, in Canada, seven wow. out of 10 are dropping out by age 13, never to return to organized sports again, wow. which is stunning. I mean, that's that's frightening because we know. I had no know, idea. Yeah. It yeah. was such a high number. And it's not all because of bullying and maltreatment in sports. Some is in the cost of sport or they found something else. They found a their gift is in music. Uh, but the, when talking to kids, the number one reason that they share for dropping out of sports is the toxic environment, the, the bullying and the maltreatment. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Is there, do you think, is, is, is there a type of personality, a, a type of kid that, sort of invites bullying do you think this is one of the questions that we get sometimes yeah well first of all i'm going to answer that with two answers one is you know if we were to say who are the most vulnerable kids in sport um i would say every child is vulnerable if they don't have good leadership in their sport organization that is really has policies has has actionable steps against bullying and everybody understands what those steps and consequences are so everybody's vulnerable but the most vulnerable are our obviously lgbtq our um, indigenous and and people of color low socioeconomic status depending on the sport uh, you know equipment that type of thing sports are very expensive and some of these kids are are ridiculed and and excluded simply because they can't afford the best uh, best equipment our um, elite athletes are very vulnerable because there's so much at stake. They don't want to speak up because they don't want to be benched or, or be ignored by the coach. Right. But there's one group. So the second part of, you know, are, is, there, is there a personality out there that makes it a little more easy to be targeted? Absolutely. We, we call them provocative targets or provocative children. I love these kids. Um, these are kids who in school often are very academically successful 
Right. But socially, they really, really struggle. So they could do very, very well in school academically, and not always in the way that school measures academic success, but they, they're brilliant minds. But socially, they really struggle. And bring that into sports. They can be very good athletes, but socially they struggle to make those connections and, and to be part of a team. They're often very excluded. And what makes them different than other children that might be targeted is they are not shy. They they do have low self-esteem, but they speak up and they have a very um, overinflated sense of fairness so right. if they think things people are being unfair to them or being unfair to a, another individual they'll speak up they're loud and they voice their opinion which makes it very hard for coaches and teachers and other adults to see them as a target because they're loud I we see. we tend to think of people as as very very quiet and isolated right these kids, the one thing they all have in common is a lack of social skills. They may be on the autism spectrum. They may be, you know, ADD, ADHD, or nonverbal or gifted. None of that really matters in my mind. What matters, the diagnosis doesn't matter to me. What matters is this lack of social skills. And it's that lack of social skills that, um, you know, the harder they try to make friends, the, the more they get pushed away. They don't pick up on social cues, whereas most of us would. We'd know when to stop talking. We'd know when to change our behavior. They don't pick up on change in tone of voice. So if a coach is getting angry, they miss those really important social cues and always get themselves in trouble. Right. So their name, you know, when early on when we talked about the definition of bullying and I said repetitiveness, is it's got to be repetitive. These kids, their name always comes up as being a nuisance. So that repetitiveness is there, but the intentionality is not. They, I don't intend to hurt your feelings. I don't intend to make people uncomfortable. I'm just lacking a lot of really basic social skills. And the great thing is social skills can be taught. Right. And this is not really to put it on the teachers and the coaches. This is, comes back to the parents. If, if you have a child that in every social setting, at sports, at summer camp, at school, every social setting is the one that's being alienated, that is being isolated and targeted, then there is a very, very high chance that your child falls under this category, provocative child, yeah. and it is social skills. And there are great, great resources out there. There are counselors, there are group um, groups that do summer camps around social skills development. And we're not doing these kids any favor by ignoring that and just hoping that, you know, those social skills will come with time. Yeah. They won't. Yeah. These are the kids that become the adults in the workplace who are isolated, who, yeah. you know, have have no support. So in these, <clears throat> excuse me, in these environments where someone's getting targeted, being harassed repetitively, as you put it, for all those kids who are not part of that bully and the being bullied, interaction and who are watching this and recognizing what's going on but are afraid to speak up this is one of the biggest problems is that kids don't speak up mm -hmm. because they're scared to speak up they don't want to become a target and so they willfully turn a blind eye and don't stand up for their for their peer who is being bullied mm -hmm. and harassed what would you say to those kids? How do we empower those kids to stand up for their teammate or for their fellow student? And again, it, it goes back to um, 
a visual that we use, which is called the diamond. It's a, a visual that we use to help the kids, whether at school or in sports, understand the role they play and whether they fit at the bottom of the diamond, which are those who are targeted, or at the top of the diamond, um, led by that 2%, the true, the true bully, and then all of the the posse that go along with the behavior. But the big middle chunk, that 79% of the diamond, the widest part of the diamond is that silent majority. And we understand that fear. It goes back to the name dare to care that, that the courage it takes to speak up. I mean, kids are fearful to speak up because obviously, as you said, fear of being targeted, uh, fear that if they go to an adult, the adult won't take it seriously and the bully will find out. And then they're very vulnerable. Fear that if they tell a parent that the parent will come to the school or come to the sport and embarrass them, humiliate them. But their biggest fear of all is being seen as a rat and um, being kicked out of their peer group. Um, So our way of phrasing it is that if you're mom uh, was washing dishes one night. No, that is very sexist. If your dad was washing dishes one night and looked out the window and saw somebody breaking into the neighbor's house and uh, phoned the police right away, the police arrived in time to come to arrest the bad guy. Nobody's hurt. Nothing's stolen. Is your dad a rat for calling the police? And the kids 100% will say no. You know, he's a good citizen of the of, of this community well bring it into your school or bring it into your sport if you know that a classmate or a teammate is being harassed and you let a coach know and the coach is able to resolve things are you a rat no you're a good teammate in fact you're an excellent teammate you are a role model teammate so there needs to be an expectation put on that silent majority but they also need to have the skills to be able to talk to a coach or talk to a parent and to be able to express the need for help. Um, often when kids are upset or angry or hurt or frightened, it comes across as whining. And as adults, you know, we have a place in our brain that shuts down when we hear whining. So right. there's skills involved in, in being a target and standing up for yourself, but also being a silent majority or a witness and standing up for your teammates. I also, I always say this too, you don't have to like everybody in your school or on your team. You don't have to be friends with everybody, but you do have to respect every single person. For sure. I think what you've described in a way really is the concept in a nutshell of courage. And I think most kids, most teens um, would like to think of themselves as courageous. It's a virtue to which we all aspire from a very young age. And what you're talking about is the courage to stand up and to do what's right. Right. But that point you made about knowing how to do it, knowing how to talk to the coach or know how to talk to the teacher in a way that isn't perceived as uh, whining or um, complaining is really a a, a key thing. And and I'll add one more thing to that is that also in order to ensure that our kids are going to speak up en masse, they need to know that the adults are going to do something about it. And that's where Dare to Care comes in, in terms of we know that the only way to shift the culture away from bullying is to include all the stakeholders. So the the parents, the teachers, the coaches, officials, everybody needs to be involved with this common language, with this education, with this skill set. And for kids, we say, if you do go to an adult and they don't do, do anything, don't give up, keep going and going until you find an adult that, that will. 
But, uh, you know, in this day and age, they shouldn't have to go far. I mean, adults need to be educated in, in what's going on in schools and sports. That's why I think what you're doing is really so important because a lot of parents, a lot of coaches, uh, sports officials and so on, don't really understand well the language of bullying, mm -hmm. feel a bit helpless because they are not well equipped with the tools, therefore, with regard to how to proceed. And so the more that you can do this sort of work, educating people around the parameters of bullying mm -hmm. and then providing them with those tools, the better. You know, in, in medicine, in my field, you know the phrase, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So the, you know, the earlier people can intervene, the better before these problems you know, metastasize and become so malignant that they're very difficult to solve. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, we live in a society that is very reactive, you know, yeah. not prevention. And, and you look at funding out there, a lot of the funding in, in mental health, for instance, is on um, resources for those who are struggling with mental health, not on preventative uh, ends of it and that's very much in in bully prevention we were constantly struggling struggling for for that kind of funding it's interesting because that's exactly the problem in healthcare as well mm. where we would be well served by funneling you know our precious dollars into prevention but instead we spend the bulk of our dollars reacting to heart mm -hmm. disease and strokes right. and cancer conditions that develop because of lifetime spent eating too much or drinking too much or smoking too much, right. lifestyle things, not getting enough exercise. So the analogy is fairly exact right. the way I see yeah. it. Uh, so thank you for this, Lisa. I know that you're incredibly busy with the important uh, work that you do, and I appreciate you carving out time to share your experiences and your strategies with us. It's such an important topic. Uh, and you've obviously created such a valuable resource. Uh, the organization is Dare to Care. You can check it out online. Uh, they offer a host of workshops for schools and sports teams, uh, parents uh, and coaches. So thank you again, Lisa, for all that you do. And thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. so grateful to Lisa for joining us and for the work that she is doing. I just want to spotlight the cyberbullying epidemic for a minute and suggest some specific resources, uh, three online resources I've found quite useful in my interactions with families and with teens. Uh, the links will be in a summary piece that uh, accompanies this episode at riskofkids.substack.com. Uh, but they are uh, first is called uh, Five Strategies for Dealing with Cyberbullying. The second is Tips to Help Stop Cyberbullying. And the third is 10 Strategies for Stopping Cyberbullying. So you can type those into your Google search engine, uh, but as I say, they'll be in the links in the, uh, in the accompanying summary piece uh, at the website. And so, you know, for parents, it's uh, just so important to teach your kids to stand up for those who are being bullied, not just to avoid joining in, but to offer support and to speak up, uh, to be, uh, perhaps uh, to riff on Ed Sheeran, be an angel in the shape of a friend, stand up against the bullies, because when other children intervene in bullying, 
it can stop the abuse in its tracks. Uh, whereas silence, on the other hand, is enabling and it can truly be deadly. As parents, of course, we should lead by example. Be inclusive, be kind, be empathetic. Treat others as you would like to be treated and raise your children to do the same. The old axiom holds true that strong people stand up for themselves, but the strongest people stand up for others. And as Ed Sheeran put it so well when he spoke on this topic in Australia a few years ago, it isn't big to make others feel small. And I'll say this, it's important to recognize that bullies themselves need help, that their actions often arise from a place of toxicity or difficult life circumstance that they themselves may have been or are being abused. But yet if there aren't consequences for their behavior, they learn to justify that behavior. Which is why, really, little bullies grow into big bullies in our communities and in our workplaces. And our job is to hold young bullies accountable for their actions and to teach them how to use their so-called power for good rather than to hurt others. It's certainly true that bullies have the capacity to change, to learn, to behave differently, to begin having healthy relationships with other people. So be understanding, be supportive, and as much as it's possible, kill bullying with kindness. Lisa Dixon-Wells would put it this way, not only for the bullied, but also for the bullies, which is dare to care. Now, for any kids listening, don't give up. Reach out for help. You're not alone. You will survive. You can thrive, even if you feel abandoned. You're not alone. And I'll share here that one of my own daughters suffered through a horrific bout of bullying when she was around 15 years old, and it was awful. And... I have to say that the friends that she thought she had weren't there for her. So she went through a really dark and awful time, but she survived and she emerged stronger for it, I think. With her permission, I'm going to share here a poem that she wrote about her experience. I'm biased, of course, but I found it really very powerful. The title of the poem is Everything. I remember the days, the good old days, when we spent hours in the sun, and I could tell you everything. You loved me for me, and I trusted you. I remember the laughter, and the countless times you turned my frown into a smile, and I knew exactly what to say. When you were so sad you couldn't get out of bed, my heart sank for you. And if I could have borne your pain, you know I would have. But then one day, when I could not get out of bed, and I needed you to do what I had done for you so many times, you turned your back on me and left without explanation. Instead of easing my pain like I hoped you would, you added to it. I was hurting and you knew, yet somehow, you hurt me more. But I got up every day after you left, and I did it by myself. I figured out how to love me and how to finally do things for me and for the people who deserve my energy. You didn't, not in the end. I did everything for you, but now I'm doing everything for me and for the ones who didn't leave when I was at my worst. So I remember the days, the good old days, 
When I loved you more than I loved myself, I will remember the joy, the memories, the things we used to laugh about. But I will never be able to forget the pain you caused. And now when I pass you by, I will be living my life, knowing now that I am better off without you, and that I deserve more. Because even though I lost you, I found me. And that is everything. That's all for today. We hope you'll join us next time when we tackle the most difficult topic we've tackled so far, and probably the most difficult topic we'll ever tackle, which is the topic of loss. Every parent's worst fear, losing a child. What does it look like? Is it possible to heal? Is it possible to move on? We'll be interviewing a parent who has lived through what, for most of us, will always be an unimaginable experience. We hope you'll join us, and once again, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Cloudy with a Risk of Children. A summary of today's episode can be found at riskofkids.substack.com. We'd love some feedback. Send us your comments or ideas you'd like to see us explore on future shows. You can reach us at feedback at riskofkids.com. That's feedback at riskofkids.com. Please support our podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your input helps us make the show even better, points us to topics that are relevant to you, and helps us reach new listeners. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope you tune in next time. Until then, remember, kids are like boomerangs. They're wonderful to hold, but they're meant to fly. The views expressed on this show should not be taken or construed as personal medical advice. For individual medical opinions, please consult your own doctor. Cloudy with a Risk of Children is a Studio D podcast production.